Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. I'm Cynthia Littleton, business editor for Variety. Today, my guests in New York are Abigail Disney and Adrian Becker. Abigail and Adrian joined forces in early 2018 to launch the content studio Level Forward. The pair have vowed to run Level Forward as a socially conscious, artist-friendly banner that strives to open doors for women and people of color through storytelling. Level Forward has made an early mark on Broadway as a producer of the recent revival of Oklahoma and of playwright Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me. Another play, titled Slave Play, has just transferred to Broadway and is enjoying strong reviews. In film, Level Forward is a producer on the buzzy indie drama The Assistant, from first-time feature director Kitty Green and producer James Seamus, among many other projects. In our wide-ranging conversation, the partners discuss the philosophy that underlies the business and how they are pitching that idea to creative partners and financial backers. Abigail, who is the granddaughter of Walt Disney Company co-founder Roy O. Disney, also addresses her recent criticism of what she sees as unreasonably large compensation packages for Disney CEO Bob Iger and others. Adrian Becker and Abigail Disney, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thank you. We're so glad to be here. You two are the founders and leaders of Level Forward, a new studio production venture that aims to take a very different tack in developing content in the way you work with your producing partners, your creative partners. Tell us, I would love to hear in your words, the origin story of Level Forward, what prompted you two to join forces and how you developed the very specific ethos and mission for this company. We like to think that our origin story happened right around the, uh, the Me Too recoming. Um, uh, and yet, I think Level Forward has been in formation for decades, if not centuries. You launched officially in January of 2018. We did at Sundance two years ago. Um, and we were a part of a team of people who came together with an idea to uh, purchase the Weinstein assets and put them into a different kind of a structure, a structure that the entertainment industry had not yet seen, um, and one that had stakeholders in community-based, community change organizations that were fighting for the cause. But quickly, it became clear that there was a much larger calling than the assets themselves presented and that this idea could fulfill. Um, and that was when the two of us met. Yeah, and, and Adrian came to me with this thought about the Weinstein assets, and it just had this beautiful kind of brilliant justice in it. So, of course, I was completely captured by the idea. This was the So this was the moment in kind of late 2017 when people, the just the harrowing allegations about Harvey Weinstein had really broken open. The Weinstein Company started to unravel. It became very clear that those assets were going to be put up for sale in a bankruptcy. And you guys were talking to various different financiers. Now, were you working on on separate tracks, or you had already you already knew each other and had already decided to join forces? We came together through this process. So um, I had not met Adrian before, and the idea had not entered my mind until you walked into my office. I think in November. And, um, and so it was very quick to get from just meeting a person with a brilliant idea 
to um, in January looking at each other and saying, well, we just start our own company. That's a little bit of an insane thing, except that we were so clearly working in parallel lines all of our lives um, and that we shared an ethos that was very strong in both of us um, and that was embodied in this idea about the Weinstein assets. So we felt like we could create a powerful thing together. In fact, it was greater than that particular transaction because what that process showed us so clearly and painfully is that one of the biggest bottlenecks in the entertainment industry is around capital, financial capital, and sourcing it. There could be 12 little production companies run by wonderful women, people of color, men that are, are standing you know, alongside um, the, the need for change. But until meaningful capital comes in to support system-wide, and we had hundreds of millions of dollars that we were raising very quickly, and you want to do that thoughtfully. And that requires a lot more time and energy than just you know, rolling out of bed, getting, getting some bank debt, and then going to the usual suspects for large checks. Yeah, the, the, the term usual suspects has a new meaning to me <laughs> since the Weinstein allegations, um, there being so many suspects. But um, yeah, it seemed possible to do things differently, to slow up. And, uh, you know, everything um, in, in the way we understand business, the way it's been taught to us is there's a transaction at the beginning and there's a transaction at the end. And hopefully the transaction at the end offers you more than the transaction at the beginning offers right. you, right? <laughs> And then everything in between is what you do, you know, to to make the second transaction meaningful. And like I say, all of life is in between the two transactions. Um, and it's really, um, that's where you make a world, right? That's how you create an environment. That's how you create an ecosystem is how you behave in between these two transactions. And so the, the well-being of human beings... Um, the nature of the content we were putting into the world, the nature of the way we were interacting um, with other people who already cared about the issues we cared about, all of these things get front-loaded. They're not like a nice little thing after the last transaction when we have a little fluff at the top and we offer that. Or right before it. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, when, when they're very um, instrumental to us. Close so, reading. So um, that's why uh, it needed to change. You know, the, the whole series of transactions along the way need to change in their nature. And so as you guys pursued the Weinstein assets in the bankruptcy process, which I think by all accounts was also as hectic and opaque as, you know, pretty much everything else involving the Weinsteins these days. So at some point you guys said enough with that, but you decided to keep going and link arms in level forward. How how did how did you go about that process? I would imagine that talking to bankers about buying some specific assets where you knew you had some idea what the value was versus we want to do this and we want to do this content venture in a very different way. That must be a very different conversation with bankers in terms of lining up the capital that, as you said, is so vital to really making an impact and getting things done. I think, number one, we needed a clear and distinct point of view. Um, and that point of view had to be, as Abby said, that there are so many decisions that come into play when you're in the business of telling stories. We need to rethink how we see those decisions, how we answer them, and how we involve people in that process. And it doesn't mean that all of a sudden you have a flat organization and you have 100 people in a meeting making a decision. It means that there are so many people that don't even get to participate 
And when you let them in, that whole process becomes different in and of itself. So what stories are we telling? Who's telling those stories? How much are they getting paid? Are they getting paid relative to one another? How are you um, providing job training, access to education so that they're not the same people just cycling through? Um, how are you distributing? How are you pricing? What do you do with the profit? And then ultimately, by thinking more thought consciously, I think mindfully about all of those decisions, filtering them through this leveling lens, can you broaden the base of capital and just clear clear some of those obstacles and dams to getting this thing flowing? Yeah. So um, we, you know, we constructed our own little corporation, the two of us, mm-hmm. and we've been raising money for projects on a silo basis, I guess a slate basis. Um, and and Adrian was so in touch with really good people who were really working successfully that we could jump into projects that were well on their way. And we've had, you know, an incredible first year doing that. And, and team is a huge part of this. Mm-hmm. It, there, it, it was along with Angie Wang and Rachel Gould starting this company and then being able to say to people who were ready, like who had reached a point in their career where it wasn't about the extra zero on the paycheck. Like it, and it wasn't about all these constructs of the entertainment industry, which we've been told to focus on the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. nothing in between. What's my competition? What are my, you know, what's my bonus potential? How many films is my name going to be on? Right. What's my percentage of the modified adjusted gross? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those are all rules of a playing field that has been the only way. And that in order to really change, we've got to start, like, we need the farm team. And we don't need just one. It can't just be level forward. It has to be many farm teams testing out different sets of rules, different goals, and different ways of getting there. What was the response, though, as you went to people, either potential producing partners, creative partners, or potential financiers, when you explained that vision? Did you get eye rolls, or did you get people that say, I get this, I think there's a real niche for this? You would be surprised at how many people in the creative community were um, so appreciative to be having this kind of conversation, that the conversations that we just referenced we're old and tired and not working. Um, and so I would say amongst filmmakers, writers, directors, a lot of wonderful agents, co-financiers, producers, the response has been not just a pat on the back, but a roll up the sleeves. Let's get into the room. Tell us how you make these deals happen. Tell us what your filters are. How do you like to work on set? How do you like to work in distribution? We want, it, we want some of that. Um, and then there are immovable forces, which either don't see you or don't want to see you. And I think with time, we will get there. But I would say generally, there's a lot of pats on the back. Then half of that goes in to roll up the sleeves. And then maybe half of that is like scratching the head still. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about you've been very active in the theatrical space at at the outset. How did Was that by design? Was that by that? Those are the things that came together at first or how did, how did that come to be? I want to say, I want to say that many, many years ago, I, I sat in a room and wrote a musical and it was and, the master know, plan follow the dream. Um, but that's a story for a different kind of podcast. Uh, several years ago, um, 
Eva Price and I were co-producing uh, Found, uh, the musical podcast, uh, along with two other wonderful producers. And uh, we just started talking about what we wanted to do next. Uh, and Jagged Little Pill came up. And Eva had just signed on to Jagged Little Pill with two other wonderful producers. A musical based on Alanis Morissette's landmark um, album of yes. the same name. Yes, which she wrote at 19. Um, and an album that transcended music. It became a part of our DNA. It became, it became a statement for mm-hmm. a certain... Uh, uh, for uh, for young women at a certain time. And, and I, as many people have commented, it's hard to believe that we're looking back 25 years and that statement about what she was shaking her fist at is as yes. is as prevalent as it was. Yeah. I mean, I, in and of itself, it's such an interesting thing that it was a cultural landmark, landmark for its time, but like it's more necessary now than it was then and more contemporary. And I see young people resonating with that album it's extraordinary, actually. The whole cast, most most of them are very young, um, are so excited by what they're doing because they feel like this woman time traveled into their brains and and knew what was bothering them and put words and music to it. So it's kind of an extraordinary thing. And then to have someone like talk about changes in, in distribution, talk someone like Heidi Schreck come along with a one-woman show about her body and the bodies of other women in her family going back generations. The show called What the Constitution Means to Me, which had a, was nominated for a Tony, has won a slew of other prestigious awards and really just got nothing but rave reviews. To have that show have rave reviews, but also be a financial success, a breakout of the season, and has just closed a two-week uh, run at the Kennedy Center and will open a tour starting in January. Um, but to have that as a financial marker um, is really an incredible, it's an incredible reason for hope. Yeah. And and then Oklahoma, too, which Eva was working on before we ever became a company. Yeah. But she went to the Hammerstein Foundation and talked them into this impossible idea. This was not something the Hammerstein's foundation was very open to this is the revival of a very different view of oklahoma reimagining of oklahoma in a in the american how it fits into the american idea of itself and with some reality and some truth along with all the joy and all the laughter that comes with that too um i have to say that that when i saw that um my my um i just couldn't stop thinking about all that was possible um, because the door opened on that. And and I think that like, this is the beauty of, of um, when you make a beautiful piece of art, you know, it, it opens more doors than it closes. And, um, and everything we've done so far ha- has been like that. It's sort of resupposed what, uh, what possibilities there are. And you have designed Level Forward to, to weave impact, not like the cherry on top at the end where you distribute some education guides to kids and call that impact. But you have you have very consciously tried to, both in the subjects that you tackle and in the projects, really weave in a socially proactive, positive component going forward. You mentioned gun neutral. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that played into Oklahoma and some of the other things you've been working sure. on? I think about $50,000 and 1700 uh, $50,000 $50, has been assigned to the destruction of 1,700 illegal weapons 
23 survivors of gun violence were on stage at the Tonys in front of 5.5 million people. Oklahoma was the first gun-neutral Broadway show. American Woman was the first gun-neutral feature film. Um, And these are obviously just examples of what could be done to generate recurring revenue for the fight to kind of just protect uh, our our country and our citizens in the daily travail. So Gun Neutral basically says, count up the number of guns. In a, in a film in or a movie production. or a play. Yep. And create a line item offset. Hmm. Um, so whether it's $100 a gun or it's $500 a gun or it's $1,000 a gun, if it's a high budget film, you could probably go to the northern end of that and, and donate it to either the Gun Neutral 501c3 or put it into organizations that are investing in youth programs to give kids something that something to do, mm-hmm. um, particularly in neighborhoods that are underserved or have chronic gun violence. We're, we are partnered with uh, some kids out of Parkland, uh, Shine, um, but there are kids in the outer boroughs at Life Camp at Elmcore that are dealing with gun violence every day. And they are doing that because they, make no mistake, they see images in culture and it influences young minds disproportionately. Um, it doesn't mean that the movie character forced the kid to pull the trigger, but it absolutely goes into shaping young minds. There's a tremendous amount of research about that. Yeah, and you and, and also, um, it's it's also the collective consequences of each individual filmmaker's decisions, and that's the part that that is never really thought about. There's there's a collective effect of that much violence, in, in you know just kind of permeating everything from top to bottom. <laughs> Something has to explain what we're living through yeah. in the last couple of decades, which is which has been, I think, just very hard for a lot of us to make sense of. Yeah. And this, yeah. you know, I guess the skeptic would say, are you really making a difference taking, you know, destroying guns in the just, you know, making an effort to destroy guns in the real world, but still use them you know, use them for dramatic effect. Here's in... my belief that 393 million guns in, um, in private civilian hands in the United States. So that's more guns than trigger fingers. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, $17,000, uh, sorry, guns is not going to make a, a difference. 17,000 guns in the context of, uh, um, in, of the inviting of a discourse and the opening up of ideas about how we could take this on. So we need to not throw up our hands and say, this is something that can't be avoided. This is something we can't change. It's bigger than it's we are. It's too big Or, or this can't. is not even my problem. Right, exactly. Which and is... so, and so, first of all, I've never even heard um, gun destruction discussed publicly, um, except among the most sort of uh, out there fringy people who were talking about this years ago. So this is an idea that needs to be brought into the mainstream and really discussed. Gun destruction is that maybe the way to dial back a little bit on the number of weapons we have in private civilian hands? I mean, the number of them is in a very large measure a part of our problem, just the number. Sure. Um, so that's where um, media and, and ends up being such an important piece of the equation in making a difference. I think that you can do both something that's concrete and on the ground, even if it's a small contribution, but if you pair it with the the dialogue and the and the and the active advocacy, then you have something really powerful. We we had a filmmaker whom we did not ask to change the script. She just became aware of gun neutral 
on her own changed the script, took the gun out of the shot, um, and it reframed the way the scene played out in the film. And I think that that conversation, that consciousness, does cumulatively start to make us think and ask questions that we had not before. Tell us a little bit about Level Forward in terms of, as I understand, you guys split your time. Adrian, you're in L.A., and Abigail, you're largely in New York, so you have kind of the bi-coastal operation. What, um, in terms of like your permanent staff, where are you right now in terms of size? And uh, We've grown. Um, we've grown a little bit in the past couple of months because the bandwidth that we had to execute on uh, everything that we had set out to achieve over the past two years started to exceed our ability to do that. So we've brought on people. We have a wonderful creative team out in Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, that's mostly focused on, on film and television. Uh, in in New York, uh, it's more focused on theater. Um, we have a tech group out in L.A. that's responsible for Rotten Apples, um, as well as uh, Level Forward Community Building online and off. Um, Angie Wang and Rachel Gould in New York are kind of like holding down the fort um, and make everything run smoothly. Um, and uh, we have, you know, we have incredible people who I think... At the end of the day, after all of the difficult conversations um, about how to how to walk this fine balance and what does it mean to be a public benefit corporation, which Level Forward is, um, all believe so deeply in the mission and in and that this this path must be carved in order for other companies to, to follow it and for the financial community to see it as viable mm-hmm. so that it's not just the impact investing conference where level forward speaks. Right. Um, and that ultimately the impact investing conference goes away and it's just about investing. And this is the way we do it now in America. Abigail, you have made headlines mm-hmm. in the last couple of months about being very outspoken about an issue that has definitely caused a lot of debate and has a lot of, you know, a lot of strong feelings on uh, people have different perspectives on it, but that the, level of particularly CEO, but executive compensation, particularly at public companies, has just kind of inexplicably, you know, gone up by triple digits in the last couple of years, along with the rise of, you know, the growth of the equities market. But you have been very specific about a company that is close to your home Mm -hmm. with the last name of Disney. You have um, very specifically said that you think Disney's CEO much admired and, you know, successful by any measure, Bob Iger, nonetheless, at a pay ratio that is more than a thousand times the median pay scale, the median paycheck for Disney employees that you think that that is out of whack. Can you talk about why you have taken that on? I mean, this is all of a piece. I mean, we really are trying to reimagine how you can build a business where, you know, everything from the bottom to the top reflects your values. And um, so, you know, I, I've been talking about inequality for a really long time, and it never really actually nobody cared until <laughs> Now recently. people are listening. Yeah. And, and I think, so I think it says something about where we are culturally, that uh, um, it's, it's something we really feel has gotten so plainly out of whack that it really has to be taken on. Um, you know, I have nothing but admiration for Bob Iger. My God, the man is brilliant. He's run this company, you know, he's brought this 20th century company into the 21st century, and that was not an easy task. Um, with tons and tons of value. He's a brilliant man. He's a very nice man. Um, The problem is with uh, what passes for nice, I think, Um, because I I think that we should, as people, 
take accountability for all of our actions from top to bottom. And if your managers, 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 managers at the bottom, you know, after all these stair steps down to them are pushing down on people's salaries and affecting their lives in a very real way. Um, maybe because not because you've said it directly, but because you've sent this message across the company that, you know, costs, people are costs. They're not assets, they're costs. Um, then, then walking home with 1,422 times your median worker's pay is maybe should make you stop. And it should maybe make you wonder, hmm, they, I mean, I am working for the same company. I do need them to do the work that I ask them to do, even if it's lowly and I can't connect an actual financial value to it. Um, but I'm certainly not going to do it myself. And if that's the case, then there is no justifiable excuse to pay them um, what is basically a, almost a slave wage. I just was with a couple in Anaheim last week who each makes fifteen seventy-five an hour. They work from 11 o'clock at night until 7 o'clock in the morning as janitors. And um, they have four children. Um, and I took them out for a pancake breakfast. And until the, I told them I was going to treat them, they wouldn't even look at the menu because it was outrageous for them to even imagine ordering pancakes with me um, on a Sunday morning because they were just couldn't find that kind of extra money in their pockets. Now, you know, how many children they have, whatever shouldn't bear on your decision at an objective level about what they should be paid. But what they should be paid is definitely more than what they're being paid. Um, because they're so far from a living wage where they are. And no premium for working the third shift in the middle of the night. That makes no sense to me. So so it, I saw this happen. I saw this happen over my lifetime. And it was a it was a shift in mindset that um that that has been pretty consistent. And um I think we all need to kind of wake up from this sleepwalking we're doing and ask ourselves are these really our values? There's just nothing inappropriate by applying your value system to the things you do as a company. Do you think it makes a difference for people like you to speak out? I think it has made a difference, and I'm a little surprised that it has. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely the worst possible messenger for this, but nevertheless, I don't know why people are willing to accept that. It, it woke a lot of people up, and um, it got a certain number of people activated who I think maybe were feeling hopeless before. Um, and it's certainly feeding into the, the Democrat side of the campaign. So there's been real progress and traction now suddenly um, because I spoke up and because others are speaking up along with me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm glad because this isn't just about CEO pay, really. This, and you know, the CEO is the tip of the iceberg. There's a massive iceberg underneath the CEO of people getting massive bonuses. We need to talk about the whole bonus pool. And, and why does it stop at level three now? And, you know, it's not trickling down, guys. You're buying your second, your third yacht. You don't need it. So um, there's a point at which everybody has to stop accepting business as usual as, as business is necessary. What will success look like for you guys in five years' time, in six years' time? That's a really good question. I'm letting Adrian answer that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're the CEO, Adrian. <laughs> I think, um, you know, there was some uh, fellow who wrote on the comments of uh, maybe Variety um, during the origin story of Level Forward. No bank, no one will ever loan a woman 
$100 million. So we're definitely on a course to get to $100 million uh, in the near term. Um, and we won't stop there uh, because that is truly the way that we concede multiple versions of level forward, multiple producing pods of producing pods, um, lifting and, and including and creating the space and time to have these kinds of conversations uh, that can be very difficult for people, but are absolutely essential. If we can penetrate capital structures, um, that's the only way we're going to change the nature of what gets produced. Because as long as it's still a, a boys club, then the boys will decide what we see. And I would add another kind of measure of success, which is all the parts of the food chain. So thankfully, there are many production companies cropping up that are optioning and developing and even producing. We've got to start focusing on financing, distribution and sales and marketing um, because we can make as many wonderful women focused films, people of color driven storylines. But if we're not getting them to the audience, if the CMOs don't get the story, don't see how they can market to that audience, haven't read that the Latinx audience is exploding, then we've got to find a workaround and we will. Wow. There is no shortage of ambition and drive. And I really just <laughs> respect you both. And we will definitely keep an eye on Level Forward. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for another edition of Strictly Business. Strictly Business.